0: Welcome to the 219th of the COVID Calls. This is a daily discussion of the COVID-19 pandemic with a diverse collection of disaster experts. My name is Scott Gabriel Knowles. I'm a historian of disasters at the Korea Advanced Institute of Science and Technology. Today is a discussion of disinformation in the pandemic with returning COVID Calls guest, Kate Starbird. Please help spread the word and send suggestions for future guests and future topics. And please feel free to suggest yourself as a future guest. As of today, February 12, 2021, there are 2,377,988 deaths from COVID-19 globally. That's according to the Johns Hopkins University Coronavirus Resource Center. There are 479,842 deaths reported in the United States. In South Korea, they're reporting 1,507 deaths from COVID-19. As a way to bring some humanity to the numbers, I've been reading a life story or a story of advocacy for those impacted by the pandemic, and I'd like to continue that now. The headline is Corky Lee, Legendary Asian American Photographer Dies at 73. This was published January 28th. 2021 on cnn.com and written by Jesse Young. Corky Lee, an award-winning photographer who captured the everyday lives and political activism of the Asian American community, has died at the age of 73 after battling COVID-19. It is with great sadness that we announced the passing of Corky Young Kwok Lee, said a statement from Lee's family. Corky, as he was known to the Asian American community, was everywhere. He always had a camera around his neck, documenting a community event, capturing a social injustice for the record, and even correcting the social injustice of an historical event that took place well over a century ago. He did what he loved and we loved him for it. Quirky had a very unique lens. His passion was to rediscover, document, and champion through his images, the plight of all Americans, but most especially that of Asian and Pacific Islanders. The statement added, He's left us with what is likely to be the single largest repository of the photographic history of Asian Americans of the past half century. Lee first began experiencing COVID-19 symptoms on January 3rd and was hospitalized on January 7th, according to a family statement on a Facebook fundraiser page. He was moved to the ICU on January 11th. He's survived by his brother and sister-in-law, his elder sister's husband, and both siblings' children, according to the family statement. Porky Lee was born to two Chinese immigrants in Queens, New York. Dubbed the unofficial Asian American photographer laureate, he documented Asian American and Pacific Islander communities in vivid, intimate detail over his 50-year career. His photography began in junior high when he saw a famous 1869 photograph commemorating the completion of the transcontinental railroad, according to the Asian Pacific American Institute at New York University. But the photo purportedly showing railroad workers contained no Chinese workers, despite there being an estimated 15,000 Chinese laborers contributing to its construction. The photo's apparent erasure of Chinese workers inspired Lee's future work, a lifetime of photographing Asian Americans and cementing their representation in history. In one of his most famous works, he gathered a group of Chinese Americans and descendants of Chinese railroad laborers to recreate the 1868 photograph in the same original location. He also captured other historic moments of social and political upheaval. His photos covered anti-war protests, fair housing issues, the gentrification of Chinatown, Islamophobia after 9-11 and more. His work became more widely recognized after 1975 when he captured large-scale protests against police brutality, following the beating of a Chinese American at the hands of New York City police officers. In another well-known instance, Lee photographed furious demonstrations in 1983, sparked by the murder of Vincent Chin and the light sentence for his killers, a turning point for Asian American civil rights in the following decades. His dedication to documenting racial injustice, its consequences, and the community's resistance continued until the end, with recent work focusing on attacks toward Asian Americans during the coronavirus pandemic, according to the family's statement his work also depicted the everyday, with many scenes from New York City's Chinatown from the late 20th century. A film about his life and work, Photographic Justice, the Corky Lee story, was in production at the time of his death. When I think about my past, what stands out most is how hard and how long the journey has been, Lee says in the film's trailer. In all my photographs, I'm trying to include as vignettes pages that should be in American history books that have been omitted or taken out. The pursuit of photographic justice, you have to keep going on because there's so much that needs to be done, he adds. Lee's death was met with a justice posted on Facebook that Lee was a true hero. Our film will pay tribute to his legacy and his never-ending pursuit of photographic justice. Rest in peace, Corky, you're loved and will be forever missed, she wrote. Long, the curator who appeared in the documentary, said in an Instagram post that he was devastated by the news. I don't know who we'd be without Corky Lee's photos, he wrote. When I was gathering art and archives of Asian American organizing, his photos were evidence of the struggle, a vital report from the movement. Community is made of people who show up, and he showed up to everything. Rallies, exhibitions, dances, policy meetings, and every banquet in Chinatown. Photos have been crucial in preserving history. Immigrants, including Asian American Pacific Islanders, have greatly contributed to the rich fabric of American society," said Linda Ng, national president of the Organization of Chinese Americans. In our fight for the AAPI representation at all tables, we must make sure that also includes representation in history. Corky Lee was an incredible pioneer of these efforts. Okay, I'm excited to turn to the conversation today, which I've been greatly looking forward to. And it's good to see Kate Starbird. And let me just introduce Kate briefly. Kate is an associate professor at the Department of Human-Centered Design and Engineering at the University of Washington. Kate's research is situated within human-computer interaction in the emerging field of crisis informatics, the study of how the social media and other information communication technologies are used during crisis events. Currently, her work focuses on the production and spread of online rumors, misinformation, and disinformation in the context of crisis events. Kate Starbert is a co-founder of the University of Washington Center for an Informed Public, and I'm just thrilled to bring her back. Kate, it's good to see you again. Thanks for coming to COVID Calls.
1: Yeah, thanks for having me on again.
0: So I'd like to start the way I usually do, just to find out where you're calling from and what the pandemic's looking like there today.
1: Yeah, I'm in Seattle. The pandemic today, we, I feel so distant from all the other people. It's hard, you know, it's hard to really um, give a global sense of what's in the global sense, a citywide sense of what's going on because I've been in my condo for so long. Um, there's a little snow on the ground, which is weird for Seattle. So that's added some excitement to the day. Um, in terms of COVID-19, numbers are down uh, from a few weeks ago. We're feeling a little bit. Uh, happy about that. Number of masks on people's faces is up, so that's good. sometimes two on one face, but but even more, at least one on 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 everyone's face. So um it seems like uh, th- those parts are are going pretty well. I would say tensions here are our teachers are being asked to go back to school in some places and they haven't been vaccinated yet. And we're beginning to start to have stories of people that are jumping line on vaccines, and that's become some of the tension. Uh, that I've perceived in sort of the local environment here, but for the most part, I think you know people are just kind of settled in and and hoping that things are about to get better, with a little bit of uncertainty about what might come next with the new the new strains of the virus.
0: Because I've had a chance to speak with you twice, I went I went back and looked. Um, we talked on August third, and at that time, the death toll in the United States was one hundred fifty four thousand nine hundred ninety two. It's a totally different era of this pandemic that we're in now. But one thing I was thinking about before we started talking, that was a, that was a moment of some optimism too. And, and maybe it was misplaced, but it was late summer and the numbers were declining in lots of places. The election was still far enough out that it hadn't reached a sort of panic mode about that. And I thought there was some symmetry almost in this conversation now and and then as both times, it seems like there's a little bit more hope might be too strong, but uh, lack of dread, maybe. I don't know. What do you think?
1: Yeah, I mean, I I hadn't realized that that was when when we chatted, but um, there are some similarities. I think right now, the bigger hope, I mean, even in August, I I think we were convinced, I mean, it's my partner and I, that it was still going to be a long time before things um, eased up and before we would be able to sort of see the people we want to see out in the world. But um, I think right now, the hope is that the vaccines will be here sometime soon, and they'll they'll work. And there's also a little bit of uncertainty about that. So it's, I think we're all still in that that uncertain place where we're hopeful that things are going to get better and and not totally sure that they will.
0: So you're so um, generous with your time with media, I feel like I have been able to keep up with you to a certain extent and reading, you know, your quotes and, and NPR and nature and everywhere else. But uh, I wanted to be a little greedy with your time and and dive into some of these issues uh, a little more deeply, particularly after the election. And I want to start with that and think about that period of time from the election to the inauguration. And what you particularly, what were you watching for in that period of time? Um, Election Day itself, um, maybe we'll talk about January 6th, I think um, specifically, but I'm sort of curious of how you, you know, when election day happens, all of us are watching the big board and waiting for Steve Karnacki to do his thing. I get a sense you watch elections differently from other people.
1: Well, elections, maybe, uh, uh, my research has only recently, uh, intersected so, so sharply with elections. So this was, mm-hmm. this was definitely something different for our research team. I'm actually going to back up a little bit further than that. Mm-hmm. And, and I don't know when we talked in August, but about the 15th of August, um, a group from Stanford reached out to us and asked us to collaborate on a project called the uh, Election Integrity Partnership to do rapid response to mis and disinformation around around the election, not generally around the politics of the election, but very specifically around the procedures, around attempts to disenfranchise people, and also attempts to sow distrust in the election uh, using false and misleading information. And so we actually, throughout August, September, October into November, we're tracking in real time and doing analysis as fast as we could on different false and misleading claims, um, especially about uh, false claims about voter fraud and eventually about election fraud. And so we'd been watching that all along. And about a week before the election, we actually put out this this um, paper and in this in this graphic about what to expect on election day, which was you know, in some ways borrowed from some of what we know about uncertainty in the disaster space. And that was that uncertainty creates conditions for misinformation. And um, and also some, some other kinds of thoughts that we had that uh, things we might see around the election based on um, some of the research we'd already been doing. And essentially what we said was on election day, um, we imagined that there were going to be a lot of people um, posting information about things that they thought might be going wrong with the election and that, in the aftermath of that, uh, there there would be uncertainty because the election had sort of been set up in ways with mail-in votes and different rules that we that many states wouldn't be able to count their votes on election night, and so there was going to be this period of uncertainty. And in that period of uncertainty, um, that we that that we would be vulnerable to misinformation, and we would see people with political intentions assembling the evidence of all the videos and pictures of ballots that had sharpies bleeding through and people that thought they weren't able to observe at the right distance and they would see this, all of this evidence wrapped together and tied into these already existing uh, narratives of voter fraud that had been built up uh, starting in the summer um, by Donald Trump and some of his uh, campaign and surrogates. And so um, and so, we, we expected sort of this this uncertainty, we, ex- we expected that there would be these false claims of voter fraud and we also expected that when after Election Day, as the um, counts came in, and because of how the counts were going to co- come in, there would be states that shifted from looking more red to looking more blue, and that there would be attempts to falsely claim that that was an example of voter fraud. And sure enough, you know, Election Day came, there was uncertainty. Um, at first, it looked like it was going Trump's way, and things began to shift towards towards blue in certain places. Um, we expected that he would prematurely call himself a victor, and he did uh, and so we, we we saw we saw a lot of the things that um, that that we expected, and then you know after that uh, what what we hadn't laid out was what was going to have to happen after, and we really did expect that to kind of resolve in the next few weeks. And what actually was surprising is is and it shouldn't have been. I mean we should know better, but that these false narratives really did take root. They became pretty hardcore conspiracy theories, and um, and that they kept being spread. I, I guess we had hoped that. That certain media outlets would would co- you know come clean with it and and actually start trying to support democracy and not you know not not push these false claims that we thought would be really detrimental for democracy, mm-hmm. uh, and they continued to, to spread for for weeks and months and into December, um and into January and um, yeah and that you know sort of it sets the stage of this, this uh, these false narratives these grievances, you know they're they're motivating this feeling of grievance and eventually motivate much more. Um, but they didn't start on election day. These things started back in June. We can look at tweets from Donald mm-hmm. Trump that are saying, you know, the, the election is going to be rigged and, and that it's going to be fraudulent. And, and sure enough, they set the, he and, and some of the circuits set the stage for, for these narratives to continue to be, to develop and, uh, and spread and take root in a large portion of our population.
0: Even listening to you describe this, which I followed in minute detail, it it feels like you're describing the election of 1948 or 1968. To me, it seems so distant to me in some ways, because time got so compressed in those, in those few days, while that blue shift, so called, was, was underway. That's a really critical moment there, as you describe, where misinformation can be injected into the system. I'm I'm curious, I want to think a little bit more about that, but also I remember that election integrity project talking about some scenarios about what happens around the moment of the sort of the safe harbor when states um, send their electoral votes, and it made me realize yet again that the electoral system in the United States is impossibly complicated. So that even people of great goodwill and who are high information voters can still get a little tripped up and confused about what happens in those weeks after. So uh, you said a second ago you you were even a little bit surprised. That things didn't resolve in those weeks after the after the blue shift. Can you say a little bit more about that as we got into December? What was surprising you?
1: I guess what was surprising me is that it is that people that perhaps we perceived as having the power to, to kind of stamp that out, whether they were in, in media um, or political leaders who could have said we're not going to entertain this anymore. This is false. This is there's it's just not substantiated. Over and over again, the court cases are. Are going in the other direction, um, and some some folks did, uh, but but enough uh, enough people were willing to kind of continue to to play those narratives out, whether that's on Fox News or some of the other kinds of um, outlets, and and you know allow um, President Trump to to continue to deny the reality of the election, to continue to say that. That 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 it was fraudulent and that he was robbed, and, and to continue to build that sense of grievance, um, which again, it, you know, it, it, at one point they said it was going to be mail-in ballots, and then they said it was voting machines. It's the, the narrative kept changing. It's like a a Russian disinformation campaign where they throw everything in the wall and wait for something to stick. But but what what didn't what didn't ever change was the meta narrative that that he was going to be robbed and that he what was robbed. And yet there's no no evidence to show that and it's so dangerous for a democratic society to to start to not just undermine we already have an undermined trust in information but now we've undermined trust in the election process itself uh and i guess you know i don't know why we're still i was still naive enough to think and some of our colleagues as well that like by the end of november our job would be done by the end of november we, you know, we've, we've tracked all this disinformation, we've we pointed out where it can, comes from, we, we said it was going to happen, it happened, and we're not the only ones doing this. There's tons of, of other folks doing this. And we just figured, you know, at a certain point, the, 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 the rational heads would, would prevail and say, you know, let's, let's actually try to do the right thing for the country and not continue to, to entertain this madness.
0: Well, I, I want to stay with that for a second, because I had that same feeling. And I thought there was nothing that could surprise me anymore about 2020, uh, as we go into 2021. But I was surprised, too. Um, I guess I was waiting, just sort of expecting that after the election results were called, that a a shift to normalcy would occur. Um, And I was struck, as you were, that mainstream leaders in the Republican Party and mainstream media figures who are attached to the Republican Party didn't coalesce around that, And I'm I'm confused right now. And I want to sort of get your sense of this. I'm confused as to why they didn't. And I'm also confused um, as to why that matters so much. And maybe it shows my poor understanding of, of how sort of people's opinions get formed. Like, why should it matter so much if the governor of Florida or the governor of Texas says something in support of an election result. We have the system, right? The system is supposed to work. It's supposed to be separate from these people who get in front of TV and say, well, I want to wait and see if all the results results are in.
1: But the system relies on people within the system over and over again. There are people, there are electors, there, there, there are people that are showing up on, on January 6th to, to, to do these, like, you know, what was supposed to be a rubber stamp process, but it still required people to take these actions all along the way. And I think um, when those people become you know, either believers in the conspiracy theories themselves, or pushed by the people they think are their constituents, who are now believers in the conspiracy theory, um, to take to take these actions that are that are um, that are detrimental. I mean, I, I guess I, 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 we're beginning to realize how much of our democratic society relies on these these norms of how things will work, and on you know rational actors and good faith actors along the way, and. And there's this piece here of that it it really, you know, there are places where, um, where if enough people just don't do the right thing, the system can break.
0: I wanted to bring that back to the pandemic and see your thinking about this. And I've been wondering a lot if, if what happened in the days after the election, and then particularly January 6th, if those things would have would have happened in the absence of this of this pandemic, particularly with the disinformation that the pandemic enabled. Have you thought about the the crossover point of those two phenomena? We
1: well, yeah, That's one of the research questions we have right now. As we no, shift back into into COVID all the time instead of election all the time, is that um, is to look at the overlap and the structure of of the spread of disinformation. So the you know the underlying networks that are spreading disinformation and compare sort of what we call the repeat. We call them repeat offenders, but the repeat repeat spreaders are influential spreaders of of misinformation in those two contexts, and to see how much overlap there there is. And I wanna, I mean, just to step back and 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 think about that. Um, you've probably covered this, but if we remember the pandemic video and how it it spread all these conspiracy theories, it comes out in May. It begins to connect um, anti-vaccine communities with the QAnon communities, and then hyperpartisan right wing media. Took that content and spread it out to sort of larger pro-Trump audiences, and they and these communities began to develop um, connections between them over time and, and become networked and, and close more closely networked to spread misinformation. So we had the pandemic video, and then we had American frontline America's frontline doctors, this sort of group that was politically organized and and was pushing misinformation about COVID nineteen. Still is pushing misinformation about COVID nineteen. Um, the producer of the pandemic video was on the Capitol grounds on January 6th. One of America's frontline doctors is one of their faces was arrested for being inside the Capitol building on January 6th. And so we have to think about the overlaps between, you know, the disinformation system around COVID-19 and how that sort of it became this these it's. Politically motivated, but also there was opportunistic opportunists within that who were gaining reputation by spreading these things, and how that sort of you know starts to develop these trajectories of mis and disinformation and begins to intersect with with disinformation around election 2020, which eventually coalesced around these these false narratives of election fraud and and became a grievance based motivation for what we saw on January
0: 6. Do you think that the I didn't realize that they were on the grounds. And as you described that, I felt a chill in the back of my neck because it does make total sense. But but I wonder about the receivers of this of this information. Do you think we're pre- people were more, more vulnerable because of the pandemic? I, mean, I, I think a lot about this information as a space in which bad actors move with intention, but I also wonder about people who are just out there receiving messages from various places on a Facebook group or Fox News or whatever, people were, were more, more vulnerable because of the fear they had of the pandemic, you think? I mean
1: we talk about um, how uncertainty and anxiety set up conditions for the spread of rumors and misinformation. Um, certainly we've seen those dynamics. That's that's part of the like social psychology of rumor, disaster, you know, disaster sociology. We have, have talked about this for a long time. Like during crisis events, rumors are, are common and um, there's been research on whether this is anxiety based, whether it's about resolving uncertainty, how those things go together. And the, I don't know if there's a super clear causal story about that, but certainly we understand that the under these conditions um, that we are susceptible to, to rumoring and, and misinformation. We're also you know, increasingly online due to the pandemic. Uh, with very different uh, social relations because we're getting our, a lot of our sociality through online contact and less through in-person contact uh, and considering this sort of pervasive misinformation and pervasive disinformation and political polarization that already characterizes our information spaces. That's another piece of the conditions for us being vulnerable um, at, at this time. And so if we think about those kind, th- those things kind of working together, uh, we can see uh, this the the misinformation. It, it, early on, it was just the, the false rumors and the fake cures and things, and those kind of burned out. But eventually, it became more of that conspiracy theorizing, where people began to buy into this this disease isn't what the government's telling you. You know the you know they're telling us to use masks, but then they they used to tell us not to. They're lying to us. That kind of of, of thought begins to to take root and and begin to become connected to these. I mean disinformation campaigns are great at leveraging organic conspiracy theories, uh, to, Mm. to, to serve their purposes. Um, and another piece of this is once you start to buy in to that kind of thinking, you become more vulnerable to more thinking like that, right? right. Other, once you buy into one conspiracy theory, you're Mm -hmm. more likely to believe another and online, you're more likely to see another because of the way the recommendation systems work. So there's all these conditions that are coming together. And I do think, you know, we had the socio the socio technical condi- conditions with the pandemic and all this other stuff that was just really ripe for the spread of mis and disinformation, the spread of conspiracy theories, and the development of these like just communities of conspiracy theorizing. I mean, we'll we'll see we'll look back and see like QAnon was was there, but it was pretty small and just blossoms in early summer mm-hmm. as it begins to intersect with this this pandem- pandemic disinformation. I'm-
0: I'm really glad you brought up the sort of theorization that we have worked with. And a lot of that theorization is, yeah, that there's uncertainty in the system and that that requires expert risk communicators. We usually think of them as emergency managers or or police chiefs or governors, uh, elected officials who can stand up or church leaders can be other kinds of people who stand up and say, no, this is what's what. And you need to follow these following three steps. I'm not sure that the literature has made enough space yet for the kind of questions you're asking about what happens when there isn't closure for a significant percentage of the population around what that reality is. And to make it even more complicated, when one political party sees that as a route to electoral advantage, I'm not sure we have seen that in American history.
1: I I might argue that both political parties probably saw that that COVID-19 could be to their political advantage. One Mm -hmm. just by criticizing the current administration and one by Spreading conspiracy theories that, right. that somehow led the other way I do think that there was something about politicization politicizing the crisis that happened um, and especially the mixed messages we were getting between Donald Trump and his administration and the political uh, sorry and the sorry the non-political communicators uh, mm-hmm. um, who who we would have been turning to and so those mixed messages didn't help resolve uncertainty they amplified it. And they gave folks that that basis to start building those conspiracy theories because they're getting those mixed messages and they're hearing that that Dr. Fauci, well, he's not he's not a friend of, of 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 Donald Trump in their minds, and so and so why do they have to believe him? And then they're more likely to believe these conspiracy theories, including the pandemic video, which were built around attac- attacking Dr. Fauci. And they so there was this. There was both a political motive that was maybe perhaps drawing a large portion of people into those conspiracy theories, as well as more of just the uncertainty, the doubt, and, and the other kinds of things.
0: Reminding everybody I'm listening, you're listening to, I'm listening to Kate Starbird, as are you, on COVID calls and and enjoying this conversation. I just want to stay with this one second more. I was going to ask you this later, but I want to bring it up now. Um, Speculation, um, but the role of social media here, if Trump had been deplatformed earlier, I mean, I'm sort of thinking about this staging out where pandemic and misinformation, misunderstanding morphs into something a little bit more powerful and insidious. If he'd been deplatformed earlier, do you think we would have had the kind of results that we did in that period after the election up to January sixth? How important was that that he was deplatformed? Do you think?
1: Well, it was. It's so hard. It's so hard to measure in absence of all these other things, right? By the time he was deplatformed, we'd already had the insurrection, right? right. And the insurrection gives you know a lot of uh, it changes the nature of the conversation because we're no longer talking about you know, harms that we can't see. We're talking about harms that we can, that we can see. Um, And I, and I, so I'm not sure how, how we measure that, except by reflecting on our own lives and media consumption after his, after he's taken out. Like I know that that the way that I've, that the things that I've seen and the conversations I participated in, and even the analyses that we've done have changed because they've taken out this note in the system that was such a focus for so many of us for so long. I I certainly kind of, it, it's difficult. Yes, had they removed the real Donald Trump account from the system earlier, that would have prevented mis- and disinformation from spreading because if we look at the top spreaders of mis- and disinformation about the election and even about the pandemic, he's among the top ones, right? He's he's spread he, and he's among the top ones because his audience is so big and they're so, Cued into his content that whenever he tweets or, or, or shares anything, it was just getting amplified in, the, in these huge ways. And so certainly he's a, a super spreader of, of misinformation. The, the The hard thing is, had they had he been taken out of the system before the vote, then then his you know then his voters do have a pretty good gripe about about you know the the system being balanced against him, right? And so I understand the the platforms. You know, feeling like it would it would be tipping the scales too much to take him out of the system, even as most of us recognize that the way the platforms worked and the way he manipulated those platforms was part of how he gained so much power. Uh, and we're seeing that not just with Donald Trump, but with a lot of populist leaders around the world just being able to use these platforms to 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 generate um, to motivate audiences and to and to capture uh, a large you know large number of supporters. But um it's it's so hard to to you know, I, I think it, it hindsight's always gonna be 2020. I, I do think it was um probably the right move to to take Donald Trump's account down after January 6th. Uh I'm not sure if they could have done that earlier without mm-hmm. with, with the same amount of just everyone being like, actually that that wasn't that wasn't such a bad idea. Um I think had they taken out the, him out earlier, there would have been more complaints. Um And they were, I mean, if you look at what the platforms were doing, they were taking more, they were escalating the actions that they took that started last spring around the pandemic. They first put a label on one of Bolsonaro's tweets. Mm -hmm. Then they started labeling Donald Trump. Then they added a civic integrity policy and started labeling his stuff around the election as well. So they were escalating action, but, yeah.
0: Let's talk about January 6th in in some detail. I've watched it uh, with my children and I, I had this uncanny sense, as I'm sure many people did. I was watching it and I felt a lot like September 11. I was seeing it with my eyes, but I was not comprehending what I was seeing and also felt like I couldn't see what I wanted to see, which I, I reflected on that while it was happening. I thought right now I'm sort of a vessel for whatever kind of information you wanted to, to feed in. You know, if I had been wanting to go to QAnon or somewhere else to explain to me what I was seeing with my eyes, I'd have been a ripe target for that at that time. But I stuck with kind of mainstream sources and watched and waited. I, I've been dying to ask you this. I mean, what were you doing? First of all, I'm sure you were fielding a million questions, but what were you doing in those few hours? And how were you keeping track of the various streams of explanation that were coming out in those four hours?
1: I was trying to go about my day. We did an interview with <laughs> Potential <Good> luck. <laughs> at that time, um, I uh, was sitting on my couch, which is across the room in that direction, watching a television back over here, um, uh, and had my computer on my lap, looking at at social media, and I was sitting next to my wife, who was also watching. And I would say that the really strange thing was the difference between her reaction, which was just to sit there with her mouth open and, and crying, and just like I can't believe this is happening, to mine, which was just it, there was a surrealness to it. Um, and certainly like I was horrified, but I just wasn't surprised. I was like, oh, that's the guy, you know, from the QAnon stuff that we see. Oh, that, that symbol means this. Oh, that, you know, the way that they're using that flag, that just, for me, it just looked like all of the profiles that, you know, we study a lot of different content, but when we look at the, the alt-right and the far-right content, and what it looks like, just the visuals of what it looks like on social media, all these symbols and the hashtag patriot and all these things just come alive. That's what it just looked like to me and and it was this weird feeling of like, oh, now everyone else can see what I've been looking at for five years um in in and, and I don't mean it in this in, in and I know other researchers that have been looking at the same stuff felt that that same that same thing as well. It's like. It's, I, I'm horrified by it and I wish this is not happening, but but okay, now now, now we're, we should be on the same page here. Now we all should be on the same page. We can see that this is toxic and that that something's happening here. Um, and then it's real. It's not, you know, there was a time where like, oh, those are just caricatures of people. They're not actual people. People are acting like their worst selves. That's not actually who they are. Those are just trolls. Those are foreign influencers. No, those are real American people who, have now taken on those caricatures and become those caricatures uh, of, of these political identities and are enacting them in, in violent ways that sort of tear at the foundations of our society.
0: It's amazing to me to hear you describe it in this way. And it, it really, to me, speaks to the incredible importance of your work that you were watching and you saw the QAnon shaman guy who became a sort of a instant meme. And I think many, and almost a source of humor in the midst of all of the, that madness. And we shouldn't have been laughing at that. I mean, you knew who he, who he was. You well, had to, Yeah, no, I, I was like,
1: oh, I've seen him in, in images before. And I'm not even like a QAnon-focused researcher. There are others who are just probably recognizing other faces as well in, in the crowd.
0: So the rest of us should have been able to recognize those faces. I mean, that might have been helpful, perhaps. And In taking it more seriously and knowing that what was happening was not just, again, I think that this is something you must always struggle with. This is not some fringe phenomenon where a few people got together and got hyped up and decided to break a window at the Capitol building. This is a a movement of people with a track record of actions in this disinformation space that brought it to life in person on January 6th.
1: This is a, actually a really hard one. I mean, I would say January 6th is a convergence of several movements at once. It's almost mm-hmm. like the network graph. Mm-hmm. You've got the anti-vaccine activists and the QAnon folks and the Protron folks, and they're they're coming together. And there also were militia elements that were organized oh. who were within that. And That's I the think Oath
0: Keepers, right?
1: Yeah, the Oath Keepers and the Proud Boys and the Three Percenters, right. and, 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 and they were um, – they're all together but they're not you know some some of them are are more sort of just convergent crowd kind of providing cover for these more kind of intentional actors that were within that crowd and i think we have to think about them in in different ways but if we look specifically at qAnon which is something we all talk about it's you know this this conspiracy theory very fringe and it doesn't necessarily make sense for those that are outsiders but people have been noticing that it was there for a long time but it was quite marginal and it was interesting and weird but it was still quite small and there was a lot of conversation among researchers and journalists of how and if we should cover qAnon and if by covering qAnon we were actually amplifying qAnon and giving it more visibility and helping to recruit for qAnon and so a lot of journalists i think chose not to cover qAnon there was a lot of conversations people were criticized for covering it and and just hoping, I think, that it would go away. And I and I think we might revisit that, <laughs> those recommendations that we gave each other and gave ourselves because um, it didn't go away. And in fact, was just waiting for a couple of, of things to happen in I know a pandemic happened, which I, I think did, did amplify QAnon and some other things as well. But um, it is an interesting story. Why didn't the rest of the world know about it? Well, the, the researchers knew about it, it's just, You know, I I was turning down requests to talk about QAnon for for six or eight months prior. Mm -hmm. I just um, I didn't want to spend so much time talking about, you know, talking about that that group. And and I know others were kind of making similar decisions. And, you know, I want to kind of hit myself on the hand because we did the same thing with conspiracy theories in 2014 and 15. We chose not to focus on them and to focus on other things, just thinking that they were marginal and that we just didn't want to be involved in that. And, and instead those things festered and eventually they became the focus of our research. We can't look away anymore, but we saw it earlier. We just chose to ignore it.
0: I, I feel 100% convicted that that kind of work has now moved to the center of what we call disaster research. I, I don't think we can really treat anymore this idea that there's a disaster, which will then be comprehensible, explained by officials in power, accepted, and then moved towards closure. I just think it's the model's not holding up anymore.
1: Yeah. And I, yeah, I don't even have a, a comment for that. I, I um. For our research team, it just became you know we we started out just looking at social media disasters, and it just became a bigger and bigger part. First, the rumors and misinformation, and the the you know the jokes and the hoaxes, and then you know the the conspiracy theories, and 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 where that connects to um, to political objectives, and how those two two things play off of each other, and. Um, and it's not just one. There's no like we can't just pull out one little thread and here's the the explanation for all this. There's multiple factors that are that are shaping these. They're resonating and shaping some of these things that we're seeing in ways that you know it's it's sometimes hard to unwind. But certainly we're not going to tie it back. If we only could change this one thing, we only took Trump's account out of the thing, everything would be different. I right. right? just that's not that's not what's happening right here right now.
0: Just a reminder, you're listening to COVID Calls. I'm talking to Kate Kate Starbird today about disinformation and the pandemic and democracy in America. You can get your questions into YouTube live chat if you want to, or you can put them up on Twitter. And just be sure to tag at US of Disaster and I'll try to get to those. I want to shift over and and ask you um, a little bit more about some of the other things you're tracking in the pandemic, like the mask debate for example, and the science um, and disputes around that. I know you're, like all of us, um, thinking a lot about temporality through this pandemic, things that you can study kind of in the moment and things that we wanna study with a little bit more purchase of time. As a historian, I like an even longer purchase of time, but I don't have that luxury right now. (laughs) Um, Talk to us about some of that mask work and how time and distance from the debate factors into the way you're asking these questions.
1: Yeah, it's so, yeah, almost two different questions for me, but I mean, one of the things we're trying to do is is capture good data um, because we kind of, we think we're gonna be studying this event for a long time. Both the event is gonna keep going on for a long time, but for the pandemic, I think, you know, there's gonna be a, a long period of time where we're reflecting back on, on on this moment. And so we're trying to make sure we have data sets that are gonna be usable for us and others to to really ask a, a range of questions. We have a big team we're working on a lot of things but a lot of our our, our team uh have chosen several members of our team have chosen to work uh, on specifically looking at different kinds of tensions in the online discourse and, and this is separate from conspiracy theories although it's connects but it's more um it, it's a different piece we're, we're um one team it's led by a phd student andrew beers is looking at um, the, the anti-mask group and, the, and, and people that are supportive of masks and how they are just conversing uh, in online spaces. They're focused on Twitter because that data is public. And we have this idea that, that science is distrusted by those in the anti-mask group and that you know the reason they're, they're, they don't believe in masks or they don't want to re- wear masks has to do with their rejection of science. And when we go look at the data, that's actually not what's going on. We actually see people on both sides of that argument, both sides of that debate, bringing science into the conversation. They're constantly citing different sources and saying, my source is better than your source. But what they're doing is bringing in different sources. They're bringing in different kinds uh, of, of studies. They're bringing in old studies that said that masks don't really protect their wearers in certain kinds of uh, from the flu in certain kinds of um, in certain kinds of contexts and uh, and case you know so it', it really interesting to see um, to see the the debates happening and kind of go not totally against our, our ideas of of, of just sowing distrust in science it's actually like very sort of you know just the same old thing we're all motivated motivated reasoners we're all trying to find evidence that su- supports our viewpoint rather than try to figure out what's actually going on And so we're seeing people, um, you know, leverage science in interesting ways. And because, you know, you don't have to be a scientist to go grab information online and, and, and pick it up and use it and show other people how to use it without necessarily understanding the process of science and where different kinds of studies fit in and how we build consensus, but we also contest things. And so there's this really an interesting thing that's it's about sort of science literacy Mm-hmm. People still may value the credentials of science, but there's not necessarily the scientific literacy to have, even as they're having these very, you know, they're, they're, they're pulling in these very complex arguments, um, but it's based on sort of logic and, and other things rather than kind of understanding what, what science is, is really about. So um, so that's a really interesting paper. Um, we're also, we've also got other interesting things that, that we're looking at. Um, uh, in relation to that that same piece, it turns out to be really easy to to scope a data set around masks. <laughs> There's only I'm one sure. word for them. Uh, <laughs> that's why it's actually easy right. to collect COVID data, right? There's only a certain amount of, you know, these words. So um, that's been, a you know, one of the things that has shaped some of our, our um, choices of what to study first. But yeah, we have so many questions. We have a team of like, you know, six or seven different PhD students and, and advanced undergrads working on things. And lots We're of...
0: That's really interesting because you know a, a lot of that kind of discussion we've we've heard. I'm, I'm sort of thinking about Eric Conway and Naomi Reske's work about you know the climate denial, and there there's a clearly interested party in in fomenting denial of the science or or reaching to alternative science, which is the American Petroleum Institute and the petrochemical industry. It's not so clear to me at least, what the interested other party, the anti-Fauci, there's no, I I don't know who the, um, who the puppet master for that would be. There's no clear sort of industry that would profit by that, that I can point to. So I almost heard a little note of optimism in your voice there, that if it's a science literacy issue, that's something maybe we know how to deal with.
1: Well, I mean, I do think, there is I mean, there's there's motivated reasoning happening. Right. So people are approaching this not, you know, not trying to, to understand what's going on, but to support support their side. And I think their side here isn't defined by, you know, some company telling them what to, what to it's defined by these ideas of freedom. Right. I should be able to say, no, this is the government imposing on me in a way I don't like. And, and I don't want the social distancing things, and I don't want the masks, and I don't want the vaccines. So apparently, they don't want to take any any kind of action um, to help them. And you know, part of that is they they pretend that the disease isn't necessarily as dangerous as, as it is. but but they have this argument of like, this is the government trying to impose on me. And so therefore, and that motivates their reasoning to find evidence uh, that of why that the masks actually don't work. But yeah, um, that, that's an interesting, uh, it's an interesting difference. I, I'm not sure that science literacy alone would help, hmm. would solve the problem, but it, it could contribute in, in, some, in some ways for those who actually might be persuadable, but the persuadable middle is smaller and smaller and smaller on some of these conversations.
0: Here we come back to sort of urgency, because I wonder, you know, thinking about vaccine, Um, and ways to reduce vaccine hesitancy, it it strikes me that this is another place where your work and the work of your center can intersect because if you can spot misinformation and disinformation in the system, then that can somehow be actually leveraged almost in real time, I would think, by public health officials to say, hey, there's a rumor going around X. Not not there's rumors going around, but there's a rumor going going around saying this, this, and this, and it's wrong on these points. Is that not possible at this time? Or is that...
1: So with, with so we're actually, one of our, r- our higher level questions is, how do we develop the methods a- and the processes to do rapid response to mis- mm-hmm. and disinformation at a pace that can actually make a change to get to the, the information before it takes root? And we did that with the Election uh, Integrity Partnership. We tried to do it. We had a multi-stakeholder collaboration. It included um, academic researchers, government journalists, civil society organizations, jur- uh, and, and some others. And... We're trying to do the same thing right now for vaccine uh, anti-vaccine content or content that's, that tries to sow distrust in vaccines. Um, it's a challenging, <laughs> it's challenging terrain and we're also exhausted because we still haven't read the final report from, the, <laughs> from the, the election one and we're moving into the vaccine space. But, um, and we're not the only ones doing this. There are other, First Draft is working on this to do some rapid response stuff. There are other research teams that are trying to do this as well. Um, but I, I, I think we do think there's a real possibility for, um, it has to be collaborative. You know, we have to be able to very quickly get those products of, of, of the analyses that are, that are, that are showing these, you know, potentially false narratives, get them into the hands of people that can debunk them effectively, figure out what an effective debunking strategy is. We still don't know. Um, but it would be great to test that rapidly. Um, and, and so we would need we would need to be able to surface things things quickly to even test these in some cases. And so we're working on some of that. I hope others are working on it too, but I do think um, there's some potential there, um, even as we're still learning about whether we should pre-bunk things, whether you have to just get to it fast after the first time they've seen it, um, and some other kinds of of methods for intervention. Um, Still, I think, still learning what those might be. Our group is more focused on let's analyze it, figure out how it's spreading and and get, you know, and get that to the people that can do the communication. But there's still some open questions and how best to communicate that.
0: That issue of the communicator, again, is opening up, uh, from my mind, a million questions because it's, in that instance, it's not going to be Tony Fauci. It's going to have to be some other kinds of intermediaries who have different networks of trust. I don't even know what, what thread to start, Pulling on that, you know, in the disaster research after Katrina, one of the things that was really interesting was if you, you know, that they show there's sort of low levels of trust among minority communities, uh, for good reason. Yeah, and that you had to look to different networks, and that it wasn't the emergency operations center as much as we want to say, hey, what comes out of the EOC is is the gospel about this disaster. We need to actually be looking to faith leaders or community leaders. But then that opens other questions because asking them to put themselves in that line of command in the middle of a disaster that has its own ethical repercussions. It seems to me almost impossibly complicated to find once we step off of this idea that there are trusted officials giving us information, where do you go from there?
1: Yeah. I mean this is a hard question. Another one I just don't think we know the answers to. And I've actually had some journalists query me about this recently and got me to rethink some of the the things for you know the last few months, I think, maybe, maybe a couple of years, we've heard, you know, misinformation is networked. The anti-vaccine community is, it has some influencers, but it's, it's this, it's this network, people kind of rise in their voices, but they're in their mom groups or their, you know, their particular kinds of chat rooms or wherever. And, and, and they're like other sort of conspiracy theory communities. And They're not exactly the same, but other conspiracy theory communities, they're they're insulated from authoritative voices because they've already convinced themselves that authoritative voices are lying to them. So if you think about this sort of, if, if misinformation, disinformation is networked, maybe to address it, it needs to be sort of this network strategy, you know, with more sort of people within the different communities, whether that is, you know, um, whether that's within the black community or um, or the mom or mom group or, you know, Vietnamese speaking. Like I think that we can define community in so many um, different ways, but um, but I do think it's there is some some ideas. There are some ideas out there about the the best way would be to have you know find trusted communities with trusted um, communicators within these different communities. But it's we don't know that that works any better. <laughs> um, and and then it also relies on you know finding trusted you know community. Uh, leaders who are willing to share these messages who may not be. So it means connecting them to the process. I, I, and I think that's when we're thinking about multi-stakeholder collaborations. We really do need, you know, the people who are part of, of targeted communities need to be part of those collaborations to be able to help, you know, both shape what the research into their community looks like and also shape what the communication pro- uh, products to their communities are. Um, and I think there's some open questions on the research side of like, what are the best ways to communicate about disaster response, disaster risk, and, and, and to help people make the decisions that are best for themselves and their families and their communities. And, and the, things have changed. The internet has changed things. The loss of gatekeepers has changed things profoundly. And we may have to, to, to learn more uh, about this new landscape in order to better design uh, disaster communication.
0: We're almost up on time with Kate Starbird. I want to just give you Kate a second here at the at the end. Um, other, you know, other work that's happening in your center, members of your team that are doing exciting things. I mean, you have so much going on. I don't know how you keep up um, with this pace. I'm a little worried about you. Actually, uh, you're going to keep up with this pace, but I'm I'm glad you're keeping that, that uh. pace. Anything else you want to bring to our attention?
1: No, I think, I mean, with th- this virality project where we're we're looking at at vaccine-related misinformation um, is somebody's just getting off the, the ground that, uh, with collaborators at Stanford and NYU and a couple other places. Um, and we've talked about the mask work that we're doing. We're doing some structural analysis, comparing influencers from the election and, and COVID-19. And we're going to do a lot of election-related research now that we have a little bit of chance to reflect on what just happened. Uh, in our information space. So we got a lot of projects going. I'm sure I'm missing some as well. Um, got, we have a big team. And unfortunately, just a lot of, of of really brilliant students and postdocs that that I get to work with. And uh, they get to do all the heavy lifting on the writing right now while I do all of these appearances and do too much <laughs> talk.
0: <laughs> I hope that you're putting together a disinformation school or something where people like myself can go spend two weeks whenever we get sprung from this COVID trap and just immerse ourselves in that work, I really do feel like it's a, it's a gap for a lot of us, I speak for myself, a gap in my own education about how I think about disaster that your work is helping to, to fill. I need more of that. Like a disinformation summer school. Exactly.
1: <laughs> yeah. Well, I hadn't thought of that, but um, maybe that's something yeah, it, it, we can chat about. It. I'm going to be the director of the Center for and for public starting next year. Um, and maybe that's one of the projects we could uh, launch as, as during my two year, um, drew the short straw (laughs) Uh, work there, so.
0: You heard it here first. I wanna remind everybody that you're listening to COVID calls. You can catch COVID calls every weekday uh, live at 5 p.m. And I wanna thank Kate Starbird for her time today and for all of your work. And I hope that um, you get a break in the action at some point. I don't know what that looks like for you, but um, thanks for all you're doing right now.
1: Yeah, thank you and for inviting me on. And I hope everyone just takes care and uh, has a good weekend.
0: Stay healthy, everybody. We will see you on Monday, 5 o'clock.